Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Yeah. Um, Claremont. Oh, God. <laughs> but Claremont is fun. You would have like a blast just because looking at these women like, oh, my God. So I'm at Claremont. With the lady to 70 something? I'm at Claremont. In front, I'm sitting at the bar. It's like a circular <laughs> thing. And it's yes. and it's just white people, black people. Yes, old, it's everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's everybody. And it's Tuesday. It was like karaoke night. So oh, goodness. In front of me, <laughs> directly in front of me, is a $2 PBR. Uh-huh. Past me is a bartender. On stage is a 70-year-old yep. white woman. Yep. Sashaying around. She's probably the star. Very slowly. Yes. In back of me is, there's a stage, and like five dudes are performing International Players <laughs> Anthem. Um, and I just did like a 360, and I was like. What is this? I was like, I'm moving to right. fucking Atlanta. <laughs> work or play in Atlanta, are you ready for Freaknik? Sexuality has become an almost sideshow on the streets. Do you know how many jobs, how many families have been fed as a result of Magic City being alive and open? If you dress a certain way, they gonna grab and feel, but if you tell them, you know what I'm saying, don't do it and be aggressive with it, they'll leave you alone. Hold up, what, why I gotta be cheap to go to Freaknik? What if I just wanna go have a good time? That made me cheap, shit. I'm Chris Frierson, a documentary filmmaker based in New York City by the way of the greatest state in America shaped like a human hand, Michigan. Welcome to Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. You may remember one of our first stops on our tour of Atlanta was at my family's crib, my family being one of the main reasons that brought me down here. So we talked shop about this international Atlantan man of mystery birth name, Ramsey Morell Gant. I couldn't wait to meet this dude. Your boy Morell is hilarious. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. Morell know what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. Morell's pretty good on five knowing people. Yeah, he does know everybody. Yeah, he does. What's he, what's he do? He owns his tire shop? We don't, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. He just got jobs. <laughs> he hit me and was like, earlier in the day, he was like, I just got into a fight with somebody at the tire shop. <laughs> and he was like, he's, he called me a nigger. And I was like, whoa. And I was like, and he was one of those cats from like Saudi Arabia or something like that. I was like, whoa, that's wildly appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Morel goes a little bit over the top. He is just, hilarious. Let's just call it like it is. He is what he is. Morel was a guy that my cousin Jason hooked me up with. Before even meeting this dude, we talked on the phone a bit back in New York. He sounded to me on the phone like a quintessential Atlanta man. Disclaimer, Savannah maybe used the word quintessential. I'm just trying to make you sound smart, bro. It's my job. So we pulled up to Morell's house in southwest Atlanta and sort of stood outside. And we could hear he was in the middle of a fight with his wife, so we held back for a second. After his wife broke out, we broke out, and he took us on a tour around town. Damn. So 
Speaking of my family, like Damn. when did you first meet Jason? Shit, I met Jay, man. He he uh Jay the only motherfucker I hang with from Decatur like that, man. Like Jay Jay a cool brother. We met like when we was kids at like a summer camp. Jay, Jason get it. He know how to make his wife happy, boy. He got that one down, Pat. <laughs> Uh, damn, I can't I can't figure that one out yet. <laughs> I can't I can't shit. You gonna make a left up here? All right, so and and so this is where this start at. Like this this start right here. They probably had a strip club each every door down the street. This was called Stewart Avenue. And that's called Metropolitan. Like just imagine college kids had a whole damn block of strippers, and this was all the prostitutes hanging that too. This block right here. Yeah. Yeah, it's all like little small hotels and shit. Gold rush still there. Like, you see this? Now, you know that shit was still open. Yeah, like there's a dude getting searched right oh, outside what? right now, and it's what, 4.30 in the afternoon? Oh, yeah, we uh, we uh, we go to strip club all day. By, right here to the right, strip club. Strip club. That gas station, strip club. Like, oh, maybe go down a little bit, Nicky's. Uh, little hotels, little hole in the wall, like that. Yeah, like that looks like a hole. Yeah, right, right there. there. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Right. So when somebody come to tell me and they come down here, man, I be like, man, you got them clubs, these strip clubs. I be like, what? I be like, man, we don't even got strip clubs no more. They look at me like I'm goddamn crazy. Right. Because it's like, and I respect how they feel though. It's a lot of strip clubs out here still, right, bro. Right. But it was just, you know, coming from this part right here, like strip club. We still ain't done. Morell took me and the crew to Jack's Pizza and Wings, a bar on Highland Avenue, a major thoroughfare in northeast Atlanta, and settle out in the backyard. So this this right here, Hippie Town. Okay. Like to the right, you know what I'm saying? We're gonna let's, let's, let's go let's go up here and get a damn uh, beer. We're gonna stop by Jack's. Jack's. Yeah, Jack's used to be straight with the dollar bills and shit. All this shit was hood, man. And now there's this looks like it should be a block in Williamsburg or some shit like that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, but it's just... Unbeknownst to us, Morel was meeting up with his friend, YouTube vlogger Bo Rakes, self-proclaimed side hustler. He spoke to me about his experience at Freaknik. So, speaking of debauchery, Freaknik brought us here. Okay, Freaknik. So I live to Freaknik. It's like the biggest coming-of-age story. Just picture about like how excited people get when they hear about the fairs coming to town or... Christmas has come to town, you know what I mean? My mom bust her ass, dad bust her ass, and they said, we're gonna get everything we want, whatever's on this list. So being a 13, 14 year old child, transforming to adolescence and becoming a man and you know, get familiar with your parts. Freaknik was like a godsend, cause all us, all over Atlanta, I know where we was at, we all called the train to Five Points train station. Right. And that's what a lot of people was just driving around. You had a bunch of 13, 14, 15 year old, 12, 10 year old, horny ass <laughs> kids with no guidance, you know, looking at bitches shake their ass on, on, on goddamn, you know, rabbits, you know, blazers, niggas had beat, everybody listening to two live crew type shit, you know, it was like. Was it like an eye opening experience? Eye opening? No, I just felt like all the strippers that I always passed by the strip clubs that I didn't get to see just came outside and showed their ass to the young niggas who couldn't get in the strip club. Y'all remember Henny? Henny the business from episode two? He came down to Atlanta on account of his brother's lit stories from Freaknik and also just stories about Atlanta, which definitely included strip clubs. I mean, if I could go back maybe three or four months prior to me coming to uh, Morehouse for my freshman year they had this thing called prospective student seminars so like PSS it's like a week 
where you got right before, you know, right before you came to school, you can see the school, get the vibe, get the energy. And my brother, you know, took me around and he finessed me getting into um, the Blue Flame. So I never been to a strip club, mind you, a black strip club. And wait, so the black strip club is the first kind of strip club you've ever been to? Ever. Blue Flame. Then that just ruins every other kind of strip club <laughs> ever that exists. I, I, was, I was such a connoisseur after that. But, I mean, I was just like, okay, this is it. This is my first strip club experience in Atlanta. Just turned 18 um, and blew my mind. $5 dances. I, I might be able to afford this, right? I'm just I'm thinking as a student, like, just trying to figure out exactly how I would um, like be able to do it again because it was just, you know, kid, this just – Coming from Seattle, I was my mind was blown. But the music, the energy, like that nightlife, that whole experience just had me like, oh, okay, this is what Atlanta's about. You know, the energy, the like, it wasn't, I don't know, like there was standing room only. It wasn't even a whole lot of tables and chairs. It was just so much energy. Damn. Booty. Look at right, right here. Damn. This sunset right here. This is uh, Martin Luther King and... Uh, this is where Martin Luther King used to live. Damn. A lot of people don't know that. Everybody go to the, uh, they go to the house where he grew up in. That, that's actually, look at, the, look at the stadium. That shit all fucked up, man. That shit. That oh, they up. built this for the, for the Olympics. And it's empty. That shit, yeah. It's they don't all use it. fucked up. They don't, nah, nah, hell nah. That shit, like, it's over with. Hey, we on bank here, right? We about, we about to pull up. So right now, to the right, blue flame right there. Word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, blue flame, we're about to put the blue flame right now. Yeah, blue flame right to the right. Blue Flame Lounge, adult entertainment. So me, Savannah, and Morel pulled up to Blue Flame, a strip club in the Northwest, home of the $5 dances, less than a mile away from where Martin Luther King used to live. We went at like seven o'clock, which is early, but it was still pretty live. Morel told us it was the early crowd, in quotes. Men and women alike were just chilling, like it was sort of like a place just to hang out before dinner. Like that thing where you like go to Barnes & Noble to wait for your buzzer to ring before you get seated at Cheesecake Factory. But the cool thing was, was just the vibe of the place. I spoke to Bun B about how this quote-unquote vibe came to be. Atlanta has a very rich strip club history. Yeah. We talked to Short the other day, and he was like, Atlanta started this shit, and then all the other clubs started to try, yeah, try to Atlanta emulate. Was, Atlanta was the first place where people weren't embarrassed or ashamed or, like, trying to be low-key about being in a strip club. You know what I'm saying? A strip club used to be a very seedy environment. You know what I'm saying? Um, a lot of, you know, assumed backdoor prostitution and shit like that going on. So... Um, but just girls shaking their booties, and I, I think a lot of this had to come with, you know, two live crew making it cool to, for women to shake their asses and dance and sh shake and strip and all of that type of shit. And Atlanta, being very heavily influenced by Miami, kind of carried that over as well. And so, you know, for us down here, it was, you know, people was not like big, like, yeah, we went to the strip club last night. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, like in Atlanta, so to me, it's always been like, it's so normalized. Yeah, no, no. Back then, it was, you know, it was almost like, um, almost like kind of 
damn, you ain't got no bitch. Like, you ain't got no woman or some shit like that, really. It was very different. Like, well, why are you going to a strip club? What the fuck are you doing in a strip club? It wasn't, like, the cool place to be. That didn't get to to be that in Texas for a while. You know what I'm saying? Um, but, yeah, Atlanta was, like, the first place that I had seen where it was, like, a, you know, just a social club, a place where people ended up at. And that, you know, that wasn't a big thing, like, you know, she got she got a big booty. Why not shake it? You know, yeah. and also like seeing just women like socializing in, in a strip club right. as well, like just hanging out, and, and so Atlanta kind of erased a lot of social lines right. in Black society. You know what I'm saying in the South. When I went to a strip club for the first time in Atlanta with my cousins. It was the first strip club I've been to where it's clear that the women have a level of power that. I hadn't seen in strip clubs in Detroit or wherever or whatever. They're like, they're like owning this shit. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense what you're saying because in every other strip club scenario, it was like women kind of, you know, begging for dances, right? Like you, you want to dance, anybody want to dance, and whereas in Atlanta, you were almost fighting to get certain people to give you dances. You know what I'm saying? So. That's where the, you know, you had the scenario where the, you know, certain clubs were known for certain girls and guys would go to that club to see that girl dance, you know, and you would have, if you wanted a like private lab dance, you had to wait because she was working the room. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was a totally different dynamic between the consumer and the dancer. Like other predominantly black and brown strip clubs I've been to in my life, Blue Flame was no different. Much like the others, there's a certain element that separates itself from quote-unquote traditional strip clubs. Me and Katrina, the boss lady at Magic, rapped about it. It seems like from a very long time ago, strip clubs are just like going to the bar. There's just, there's not that thing like, it's not like this, the perverts go there right. or like, or that sort of thing. Can you talk about that a little bit in, in the context of Atlanta from, from your perspective. And it's funny that you say that because I just saw an interview. As a matter of fact, I think we posted it on our Instagram where Jermaine Dupree was doing an interview somewhere. And he said, if you are going to be in Atlanta and you don't want to date a guy to go to the strip club, you're not going to have a man because that's what we do. And it's not even about, like you said, it's not about I'm going to snack at girls. It's, it's the strip club is where everybody goes, women included. Like we have just as many women in here, sometimes more women than we have men. I think that's what the difference is. Is in Atlanta, strip clubs are not looked at as being strip clubs. It's normal almost. Like right. I bring, my, I'm in my forties, almost fifty, and I bring my girlfriends here, and they freaking have a blast. Because the thing is, I tell women, and one lady was like, "Well, I don't want to see naked girls." I said, "Honey, who do you think is in here looking at naked girls? It's men. We have a club full of men. <laughs> so <laughs> this is where you want to come." And then it's like, "I never thought of it that right, way. Right, right. It's a club full of men that have money." Does like you can come up, come on now. They come to see strippers, <laughs> but you the chick that they probably can get with before they get with the stripper. So come on, get grab you one of these men and go on home with them or do what you or whatever you do. But get you, you know, come on, that grab makes, one that, of them. That makes a it thousand makes percent. Sense. It like makes a bunch sense. of dudes that have it's a bunch of that dudes legit have the disposable income that literally in their hands. In their hands. <laughs> like why not? What's the difference between? If there is one, because I've found that there's very distinct differences between white strip clubs and black strip clubs. For one, I think it's the, the music, definitely. Right. And the type of dancing. Because right. I know that I've heard about the white strip clubs, and they kind of just kind of sway back and forth where our girls busted open. 
Mm. Basically, they bend down and do tricks and do aerodynamic stuff on the thing. And we do a lot of, yeah, we we do a lot more than I think than they do. I mean, I was here, we were here yesterday at like four o'clock. And you like came out of the bathroom and you saw like she was upside down. Yeah. Like, and I was just like, oh my God, like this is, (laughs) this is on some next level shit. Yeah. Being a stripper isn't just getting on stage and shaking your ass. You know, it's more money than just stage money. But when you have a background in gymnastics or in technical dance, it helps your stage presence a little more because you already have that form and you already have the muscle tone and the tightness and the technique. I'm not the biggest booty girl or none of that, but I put on a show. I'm a pole girl. I love to get on the pole, do some pole tricks, um, handstands, all that. That's what you're gonna love when you see Nunu. I'm gonna put on a show for you. I'm gonna do some tricks. I might stand on my head, might do a split. The relationship between the dancers and the patrons is different. And I feel like also in, in I'm generalizing, but I've always felt like in black strip clubs, like women have more power in the situation. Yes, the black women definitely have a lot more power because they kind of control what's happening, I think. I was talking to a dancer the other day, as Andrew said, that um, she's kind of young. She's probably like 22. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. And I was talking to her and I was saying, you know, just as me being an older woman, I'm basically probably older than her mom. (laughs) But she was talking about a guy that was an athlete that was in here that um, was trying to talk to her. She's like, it's just, you know, it's kind of hard to kind of have a conversation. So instead of us trying to have a conversation here, we do more of like, we just dance. Mm-hmm. And that's our conversation. Like their, their dancing is either I like you, I'm feeling you, or I'm really not like you, I'm really not feeling you. And they kind of can control that. And they know how to control that. Right. It goes against a narrative that strip clubs and women who strip are somehow being exploited by some sort of, you know, patriarchal system, which is not not to say that we don't mm-hmm. live in a patriarchal right. system, but it goes against that 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 narrative a little bit well, because it's, because we it's a value. celebration. That's the difference too. I think the difference is is that we value our dancers. Like our dancers are family. Like we follow each other on social media. I watch them. They watch me. We're friends, basically. It's like, and then when you once you start working here, you're part of the Magic City family. You just become a part of the family. Magic means a lot to Atlanta, and I, I had a lot of people conflicting with me as to whether or not I should come here tonight. Why would a council member go out to support a place like that? And I had to think about. It. I said, a place like that. Do you know how many jobs, how many families have been fed as a result of Magic City being alive and open? Do you know how many people? have been eating off of Magic City for so long. How many children have been fed? It means a lot. How many people went to college? In Atlanta, adult entertainment venues have support from mayors past and present. Katrina regaled in a recent story in regards to the current head of state, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Keisha sent us a Christmas card. I said, ah! Oh, word? Keisha, sure did. Came from Keisha Lance Bottoms office to Magic City. I said, okay. So that again, that lets us know that she supports us, and that's, that's a good thing too. Cause see, that's the thing too. If we ever get a mayor in the city of Atlanta that does not want strip clubs, we would be in trouble. But they, just so far, all the mayors we've had have been people that support it because they understand the that it's a part of the culture. Yes. But but again, most of our all pretty much all of our mayors have been black. Right. You don't know what might happen if you have a, a mayor that's not black that comes in. You see what I mean? 
But because I mean, the ones that have come in so far understand what Mad they know what Magic City is. They understand that Magic City is a part of Atlanta's history. Not everybody understand that. Damn. Back in the car on our way back to the hotel, stopping by Morell's to drop him off. We were all wasted. I wasn't driving. Morell sort of put me onto the rules of the club and then put me on blast. We can't go in there when let me tell you, rule number one. Don't ever go to a goddamn strip club in Atlanta and not spend no goddamn money during the nighttime. At least give somebody some couple ones or couple fives. I did that. You gave, you gave, you gave maybe three dollars. No, I, right? I put out twenty dollars on the floor. You shouldn't. You should just pass out this triply. I got. I, I put twenty dollars out. I get of that. my own money. Congratulations! What the Thank fuck you. are you telling me for? <laughs> Motherfucker, I ain't signed up for this trip. <laughs> the fuck? As Katrina told me, there's sort of a spirit down there that empowers women in their sexuality. Albeit in a controlled environment, that being a club. As I see it, as Freaknik grew to its heights, that spirit sort of spilled out into the streets where near to wells began taking advantage of it. Too short, an Atlanta resident in the early 90s explained to me this very thing in talking about this weird sort of changing of the guard of participants at the party. By the time 95 came, the word had went out to, like, the perverts. So the people who could tolerate a girl twerking her booty in front of you and be like, ooh, that's hot, take a picture of it and say, take a picture with me or, or give me your number or something, them motherfuckers got replaced with motherfuckers who just saw that shit and was like, I want to eat your booty. Like, literally, in 95, I knew it was the end because groups of guys would walk around in packs and they were walking up to the, the, the girls, you know, they got on high heels and shorts and shit and butt cheeks and they thinking it's going to be like the rest of the years. These motherfuckers would surround them and in about 30 seconds, a chick would just come out running with panties on, titties out, and just screaming for her life. Police rushed to Greenbrier Mall in southwest Atlanta after a sprawling parking lot party turned ugly. Witnesses say a woman dancing on a car was assaulted moments after she called off the show. It was like, man, y'all fucking the game up, bro. Like, that's illegal. Like, stop. And it was just like they were just so perverted. It got ugly. Imagine a hundred guys on top of you and you don't know why screaming and taking off our shirt and they just had it pinned up in this corner. In the parlance of an old adage, commonly referenced in the Afro-American community, this is why we can't have nice things. If you're talking about sexual assaults, um, that's anywhere from guys grabbing girls' asses as they walk by because their asses are out, you know what I'm saying? Um, all the way to, I'm sure drunk high dudes were take trying to take women's bodies from them. George Hawthorne is chairman of the planning committee for what they tried to call Black College Spring Break. Participants, many of them who were not college students, called it Freak Nick. If the same events were to occur one week prior or one week later, the people who were perpetrators of those activities would be locked away. These fucked up events that Bun's talking about are sort of exemplified in this abhorrent abominable, albeit heroic, almost Herculean story that our boy George Hawthorne explained to me. A group of uh, women came, were walking down the street. We had our team out there observing 
you know, making sure what's going on, meeting with the uh, organizer. And with me sitting there, this woman, I don't know, she was wearing a halter top or something. And I mean, a gang of guys started trying to grab her, feel on her, and they stripped her naked in the middle of the street. And there's, they were all hounded around here. And I remember having to, in the, it was right in front of me. So, I mean, I, I had to, I went, jumped in the middle of it, pushed the guys out. And I remember grabbing her in one arm, hitting guys off in the and pulling her into the building off as a saver. And that, that changed my whole opinion of this whole thing because it was just ridiculous. And if right. somebody wouldn't have been there, she could have been literally raped in the middle of the street. And that, that, that was not in an outlier event. Is it time for black college spring break or what has been called freak Nick to move out of Atlanta and move to the beach? Has it outgrown this area? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about freak Nick? The first thing I think about is just people like young people out in the streets and girls half dressed and people just um, drinking and partying. Like, it, do you have a positive connotation to it or a negative one? Um, I would say a mixture of right. both. It's definitely, um, like, liberating, I would say, in a sense. Um, but it did, like, stop traffic. And, I mean, there's, I think there's both sides to it. Right. Who else? Yeah, I think, like, some people, when I think about Freaknik, like, from when I was younger and I, like, actively seen things was, like, the people that actually, like, are hurting women or raping women or... Um, saying, oh, what she has on is, like, is too promiscuous. That was a student in Professor Marion Myers' class. Dr. Myers is that awesome educator at Georgia State University. The woman Savannah sort of tricked me into on that quid pro quo basis doing that class lecture for. The reason we wanted to speak to her in the first place is we'd come across this paper she had written called African American Women in Violence, Gender, Race, and Class in the News. Heavy, I know. Right on. Um, thank you for letting me do that, Doctor. My pleasure. That was a tremendous amount of fun. I legit was, I was legit, it was I don't get nervous like that often, but I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit, I was a little bit nervous, but they, the students helped. Yeah, no, and you were great. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Upon reflection of hearing that audio back in the studio, I realized that that conversation sounds incredibly weird and mad suggestive. I know. But anyways, back to the story. My first book, which was a long time ago, came out a long time ago, was about news coverage of violence against women, subtitled Engendering Blame. Um, and, and I looked at news coverage of violence against women. And um, most of what I found was white women who were the victims of violence. And there really wasn't much in there about African-American women who are the victims of violence. You know, most violence against women is interracial, which is like white men beat up white women and right. black men beat up black women for the most part. And then when you have like an African-American man beating up a white woman, you get extraordinary coverage. So what I decided to do after that book came out, because I really wasn't able to say anything mm. about African-American women who are the victims of violence, I decided that I wanted to write something about about that, and I had heard, you know, that um, that there was a lot of violence against women during Freaknik, and I said, "Aha! I can do a story about violence against African American women by looking at Freaknik coverage." 
around 96, they started really drumming up the sexual assault thing, the violence thing. And it was like, there was three rapes today. There was, you know, like that sort of thing. Personally, I think they didn't care about it until they decided to end Freaknik. And then they were going to marshal whatever they could to say this is a bad thing for the city. So, you know, nobody, I mean, it was happening. It's like, you didn't know it was happening. It was happening, you know? And so there was a blind eye to it initially. And then, you know, when it became more controversial, you know, not the violence against women, but Freaknik itself. And, you know, and businesses were complaining. Businesses were concerned. You know, it's like they're afraid of looting. They're hiring extra security guards, you know, shut down Lenox Mall. I mean, that's when it's like, oh, yeah, you know, we've got lots of violence against women here and women are being raped and we need to, like, shut down Freaknik. In my opinion, the media only touched upon lady issues when it worked in their favor. That favor being in line with the city wanting to shut Freaknik down. Bun B spoke to me about the complexities of these problematic times. Because of the fact that the media wasn't covering the gathering in general, there would have been no need for them to cover looking for any of that type of stuff happening. And even if they would even have given a fuck if that kind of stuff was happening. But any of those events where the black girls, you know, wore the thong bikinis or just had, you know, their butts out or whatever in general, whatever, dudes would always try to run up and grab and feel on girls and shit like that. But... You look back now, you realize all of those are just mini sexual assaults, you know? Atlanta police have caught a glimpse of the dark side of the party. We have had two cases of reported rape. Uh, Some young ladies were on top of their vehicles dancing, and uh, one of them was able to get inside of the vehicle and roll up the windows and lock the doors. The other one uh, is reported that she was raped on top of of the vehicle. Why couldn't she dress however she wanted to dress and not be um, sexualized by the community that tend to come with people? Because normally it wasn't just people from Atlanta. It was everybody coming in and doing this to people, like everyone. So So it's the gender sort of politics that sort of surround that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's that's another thing where, again, we I keep saying gray area, but there's gray area there. And. Why shouldn't you be able to wear whatever you want, you know, and not be frowned upon or seen as being too provocative or whatnot or the whole thing of like, well, she shouldn't have worn that skirt type mentality. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to assume as much, but I, you know, it, I know women don't go to these things planning on being assaulted, but I mean, you just, you know, it's just a very, very loose environment. You know what I'm saying? You just have to be careful about you know, where you choose to put yourself at and make yourself susceptible to dumbass people doing dumbass shit, you know? Not saying that women shouldn't be able to go to Freak Nick, but, you know, this is very, very loose environment with people very intoxicated doing dumb shit the entire time. So I'm sure a lot of that type of shit happened, and I'm sure nobody was, I'm sure the police weren't trying to hear it, and, you know, I'm sure it was a very wild time for, for, for a black woman. So the coverage tended to blame the women for their own victimization. So, and, and it really, you know, let men off the hook. Rhonda Riley and her friends from Birmingham say they had no trouble with unwanted advances because they were extra cautious. I didn't let anybody touch me. It was freak neat, but I didn't want to get touched. I, I didn't want to be violated. If you dress a certain way, they're going to grab and feel. But if you tell them, you know what I'm saying, don't do it and be aggressive with it, they'll leave you alone. There was one clip that's, you know, uh, one of the stations k- kicked off Freaknik coverage. I think it was a Friday night. 
you know, Freaknik's here. The anchor opened the uh, story saying, short skirts draw a crowd at Underground. And what you see with the camera is showing these women walking by and these men grabbing and groping them and trying to get, you know, tear off their clothes or grab their whatever. And the story goes on that these women, I forget where they came from, maybe Little Rock, but they were students, came mm-hmm. from out of town. They had to be escorted back to their car by the police. So, you know, the narrative was that these short skirts, you know, were a problem, but actually it was the men. So the men were repeatedly let off the hook. Sexuality has become an almost sideshow on the streets as a sea of young men surrounds car after car. Downtown, a young woman is admired and then pinned up against the wall by a mob that surrounds her. The cameras tended to focus on women who were like scantily clad and like hanging out of car windows, dancing. And I mean, those, I mean, you've got alcohol, (laughs) drugs, you know, hormones, you know, young people. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. Um, so, but the, the images were primarily of women who are seeming to be provoking, Mm -hmm. you know, male attention and male response. And so that's how women tend to get blamed. It's like, you know, we, sh- you know, women should be able to dance. Yeah. Police say they may be able to control the traffic, but they cannot always control the crowd. So they're warning women to have fun, but be careful. Patricia Hill Collins talks about stereotypes, you know, African-American women. You've got the Jezebel, the hypersexualized black woman who, you know, is essentially a nymphomaniac and, you know, wants sex all the time. And and when you characterize somebody as a Jezebel, which the news did in terms of covering Freaknik, when you do that, they're at fault. You know, you can't, you know, blame someone who's already blamed. Right. <laughs> She's not innocent to begin with. To a certain extent, the media was more interested, to me, in victim-blaming women as opposed to calling men on their bullshit, while at weirdly the same time playing into the trope of hypersexualized black men and women. As a black human being in the world in 2019, I'm pretty used to seeing exaggerated portrayals of black people on the television and the internets that kind of put us all in a box, a scary box. You know, you can think about anything from the Ferguson protests to Black Lives Matter protest, they always show the craziest shit. And Freaknik was no different. I don't know who said it first, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. Back in the classroom. So did they stop it because of all the sexual assaults that were happening? Is that what? It's, it's definitely one of the reasons that they stopped it. Um, it's, a, it's the reason why they said they stopped it. The violence was very overreported. It became like to looking like like a dangerous thing. I mean, I found a Times New York Times article that was like from 96 and it was like like Atlanta braces for deluge of doom. Like it was like I'm paraphrasing, but it was like crazy. I was like it got such a negative thing that the city was like they didn't want to deal with that. One of Marion's students brought up the race question as it relates to Freaknik. I think that that race played a huge part in it. Right. And I and I feel like like the reasons that they gave, you know, like the the crime and the rape and all that was happening, they portrayed 
the, you know, the, all these college kids as criminals in a way. Right. And, and that put the negative connotation for the New York Times to write an article right, right. You know, up in New York saying that Atlanta was being wreaked havoc upon by all of these college kids who were just partying on like, like Daytona Beach. Right. You know what I mean? It just got too big. And I, I feel like the entirety of Freaknik has been misunderstood by a whole population and generation of people. Yeah, I mean, race definitely played a major part of Most it. It's, it's, a sort, it's a sort of thing. It was like when you look at, I mean, I, I'm old, so when MTV used to have like the spring break stuff, mm-hmm. it's like a celebratory thing. Like right. there's nothing negative that's portrayed on that. I, I interviewed like one of the old DJs from the 90s the other day, and we had this conversation. But it's like these two different things that are happening. And for the most part, there's kids having fun. But one is looked at, it's demonized to an extent. And to your point, race definitely played a huge part in it, as it it does in a lot of things. Because I'd like to see the statistic from the same year at Daytona Beach, the number of crimes and rapes and other, you know, drug-affiliated things reported, you know, compared to Freaknik. And, And the only difference is the majority race. It was mad interesting to hear this student bring up media representation as it relates to spring break. Back when I talked to the OG VJ god, John Sensio in California. John Sensio here. It's rude awakening uh, tanning tips. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. We chopped it up about some of these racial differences. When I worked MTV, you know, I'm interviewing Snoop Dogg. I'm interviewing Foxy Brown. I remember Kadeem Hardison was there. I thought that was cool. He was getting into directing. Uh, Aerosmith, Stone Temple Pilots, and there was no discussed narrative of this was a um, a white event. There was the issue of responsibility that you and I discussed, where um, you know drinking in excess, drugs in excess, the way females are portrayed or depicted. Um, uh, thankfully, there was that. There, you have two concurrent events that have the same level of debauchery. Whereas one is presented in an even more negative light because of the superficial difference of race. And speaking with George, he kind of broke down Freak Nick and Spring Break in a way that the media really didn't represent it at the time. His Spring Break was analogous to the beach houses of MTV that Sensio partied on at Daytona and Panama City. But here in Atlanta, something was different. When you got a bunch of 19, 20, 22 year olds into the city of Atlanta for the first time, probably away from home in a major event. And there's looking like there's this is a free for all, all holds barred. All inhibitions came off and ridiculousness took over. Right. I mean, it, it really did. You know, and they, at the end of the day, we had to make a decision. And my decision was no, I can't condone this any longer. Right. I mean, and it, it wasn't a popular decision at that time. I mean, I think that it's an easy thing for people to say, um, and this goes kind of to the back, the backlash. Yes. Um, that you're going against your own people. Yeah, no, that was it. I mean, I had that from my committee member because Sharon Toomer was on our committee. So in such a relatively small period of time, how do you go from something that really was a great thing, right, to something that's just so seedy now? And nothing that I could co-sign. So there was like no middle ground there. Like, of course, you're going to have some years that it's not great. But it just turned into something that um, I think I told one reporter, this is not anything I would buy into. 
Was there an element of, and this is a, I don't know if it's a tricky question, but you know that thing where you see representations of black people doing wild shit and you know how it plays into a narrative that white America, not at large, but it fits into this certain narrative and you're like, God damn. I wish they weren't doing that right now. Is it was? Did you have any of those vibes at, when you were? We, I, I don't know if I'm explaining um, that right, but you're like. I mean, I don't like what was happening on the ground. Right. That's what was bothering me. When you start hearing of women's, uh, so there's rape, and then there's sexual assault. Right. So, stripping women's tops off pulling their pants down, uh, fondling them, molesting them, that to me is some, some debauchery, right? And I don't really care what white people think. I care what I'm thinking about mm-hmm. with that. Um, and so that's what it turned into. Right. Now, Freaknik, when it wasn't that, was still a problem for white people. And it still fed this narrative or, you know, what, whatever their fear or whatever their discomfort is. But um, towards the end, I got to tell you, it was just, it was, I was, couldn't defend it anymore. I remember looking at the, the police reports, the arrest reports, the incident reports of rape, sexual assaults, uh, violence, you know, robberies and things like that. It just... You know, it's it just something I couldn't condone. Was it was it visceral? Like, was it like, oh, maybe like this should not happen anymore? Oh, yeah. No, and that's exactly. I mean, I got to a point where as a father, I had a 13 year old daughter at that time. I'm like, this could be my child out here. And it's like these are not african-american hbcu students these is <laughs> johnny from the block from detroit come down but you know really that's what it was we had every you know let's keep it again let's keep it real uh, black culture we've got the dealers the hustlers the the they all came out. Right. Atlanta was the place for them to be that weekend. You know, the cars, they show their cars off. They're able to, you know, do their business in and, and, and what they felt was an uh, unobstructed way, and it just got out of hand. At the end of the event, we sat down. We were supposed to make recommendations for the next year. And I remember even sitting in the uh, committee with our – we had conflict on that, and I was like – I'm not, I'm not, I can't condone this anymore. Right. I mean, there's no way that I could, you know, basically accept this event in its current form and endorse it as a viable event for Atlanta, right. for the image of Atlanta. And it, it really came down to that. Atlanta. Next time on Freaknik, a discourse on the paradise lost. Well, so Bill Campbell went to jail after he was the mayor. Everybody has somebody to get a little too drunk. They gotta have somebody like, man, chill, chill. I'm too much fun right now, boy. You gonna fuck up everybody? And if they can't deal with Freaknik, how are they gonna deal with the '96 Olympics? Everybody likes to think that progressive until you've got ten thousand black folks sitting in your front yard. <laughs> <laughs>
Freaknik, A Discourse on a Paradise Lost, is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio. Created, produced, and narrated by myself, Christopher Frierson. Executive produced by Chris Colbert of DCP Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Savannah Jeffries, Mark Grandy, and Matt Graylin of Mass Appeal. Edited by Cher Vincent, Keith Memminger, and the dude with the best name in the office, Chris Bravo. Executive produced by Dave Easton and produced by Hannah Cope of Endeavor Audio. Associate producer, the venerable and illustrious Caroline Jones. Technical producer, Nick Pacciano. Assistant edited by Jefferson Espedia and Louis San Giorgio. Archival production by Jillian Bergman. Associate producers, Jackie Garofano, Brandon Tago, Adele Coleman, and John Kulnowski of DCP Entertainment. We were mixed by the lovely Sue Polino. Music supervision by Carolyn Mislove. And our finishing producer was Stephanie Pacciano. Thanks again, Steph. And last but not least, talent booking and all-around support, the Honorable Roberta Magrini. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.